Book Five, Chapters Five and Six of On War, Volumes Two and Three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Book Five, Chapter Five, Order of Battle of an Army. The order of battle is that division and formation of the different arms into separate parts or sections of the whole army and that form of general position or disposition of those parts which is to be the norm throughout the whole campaign or war it consists therefore in a certain measure of an arithmetical and a geometrical element the division and the form of disposition the first proceeds from the permanent peace organization of the army adopts as units certain parts such as battalions squadrons and batteries and with them forms units of a higher order up to the highest of all the whole army according to the requirements of predominating circumstances in like manner the form of disposition comes from the elementary tactics in which the army is instructed and exercised in time of peace which must be looked upon as a property in the troops that cannot be essentially modified at the moment war breaks out the disposition connects these tactics with the conditions which the use of troops in war and in large masses demands and thus it settles in a general way the rule or norm in conformity with which the troops are to be drawn up for battle. This has been invariably the case when great armies have taken the field, and there have been times when this form was considered as the most essential part of the battle. In the 17th and 18th centuries, when the improvements in the firearms of infantry occasioned a great increase of that arm, and allowed of its being deployed in such long thin lines, the order of battle was thereby simplified, but at the same time it became more difficult and more artificial in the carrying out, and as no other way of disposing of the cavalry at the commencement of a battle was known but that of posting them on the wings, where they were out of the fire and had room to move, therefore in order of battle the army always became a closed inseparable whole. If such an army was divided in the middle, it was like an earthworm cut in two. The wings still had life and the power of motion, but they had lost their natural functions. The army lay, therefore, in a manner under a spell of unity, and whenever any parts of it had to be placed in a separate position, a small organisation and disorganisation became necessary. The marches which the whole army had to make were a condition in which, to a certain extent, it found itself out of rule. If the enemy was at hand, the march had to be arranged in the most artificial manner, and in order that one line or one wing might be always at the prescribed distance from the other, the troops had to scramble over everything. Marches had to be constantly stolen from the enemy, and this perpetual theft only escaped severe punishment through one circumstance, which was that the enemy lay under the same ban. Hence, when in the later half of the 18th century it was discovered that cavalry would serve just as well to protect a wing if it stood in rear of the army as if it were placed on the prolongation of the line, and that, besides this, it might be applied to other purposes than merely fighting a duel with the enemy's cavalry, a great step in advance was made, because now the army in its principal extension or front, which is always the breadth of its order of battle, open bracket, position, close bracket, consisted entirely of homogeneous members, so that it could be formed of any number of parts at pleasure, each part like another and like the whole. In this way, it ceased to be one single piece and became an articulated whole, consequently pliable and manageable. The parts might be separated from the whole and then joined on again without difficulty. The order of battle always remained the same. Thus arose the corps, consisting of all arms, that is, 
such an organisation became possible, for the want of it had been felt long before. That all this relates to the combat is very natural. The battle was formerly the whole war, and will always continue to be the principal part of it, but the order of battle belongs generally more to tactics than strategy, and it is only introduced here to show how tactics in organising the whole into smaller wholes made preparations for strategy. The greater armies become, the more they are distributed over wide spaces, and the more diversified the action and reaction of the different parts amongst themselves, the wider becomes the field of strategy, and therefore then the order of battle, in the sense of our definition, must also come into a kind of reciprocal action with strategy, which manifests itself chiefly at the extreme points where tactics and strategy meet, that is, at those moments when the general distribution of the combatant forces passes into the special dispensations for the combat. We now turn to those three points, the division, combination of arms, and order of battle, open bracket, disposition, close bracket, in a strategic point of view. 1. Division. In strategy, we must never ask, what is to be the strength of a division or a corps, but how many corps or divisions an army should have. There is nothing more unmanageable than an army divided into three parts, except it be one divided into only two, in which case the chief command must always be neutralised. To fix the strength of great and small corps, either on the grounds of elementary tactics or on higher grounds, leaves an incredibly wide field for arbitrary judgment, and heaven knows what strange modes of reasoning have sported in this wide field. On the one hand, the necessity of forming an independent whole, open bracket, army, close bracket, in a certain number of parts, is a thing as obvious as it is positive, and this idea furnishes real strategic motives for determining the number of the greater divisions of an army, consequently their strength, whilst the strength of the smaller divisions, such as companies, battalions, etc., is left to be determined by tactics. We can hardly imagine the smallest independent body in which there are not at least three parts to be distinguished, that one part may be thrown out in advance, and another part be left in the rear. That four is still more convenient follows of itself, if we keep in view that the middle part, being the principal division, ought to be stronger than either of its others. In this way we proceed to make out eight, which appears to us to be the most suitable number for an army. If we take one part for an advanced guard as a constant necessity, three for the main body, that is a right wing, centre and left wing, two divisions for reserve, and one to detach to the right, one to the left. Without pedantically ascribing a great importance to these numbers and figures, we certainly believe that they represent the most usual and frequently recurring strategic disposition, and on that account, one that is convenient. Certainly it seems the supreme direction of an army, open bracket, and the direction of every whole, close bracket, must be greatly facilitated if there are only three or four subordinates to command, but the commander-in-chief must pay dearly for this convenience in a twofold manner. In the first place, an order loses its rapidity, force, and exactness if the gradation ladder down which it has to descend is long, and this must be the case if there are core commanders between the division's leaders and the chief. Secondly, the chief generally loses his own proper power and efficiency the wider the sphere of action of his immediate subordinates become. A general commanding a 100,000 men in eight divisions exercises a power which is greater in intensity than if the 100,000 men were divided into only three corps. There are many reasons for this, but the most important is that each commander looks upon himself as having a kind of proprietary right in his own corps, and always opposes the withdrawal from him of any portion of it for a longer or shorter time. 
a little experience of war will make this evident to any one. But on the other hand, the number of divisions must not be too great, otherwise disorder will ensue. It is difficult enough to manage eight divisions from one headquarter, and the number should never be allowed to exceed ten. But in a division, in which the means of circulating orders are much less, the smaller normal number, four, or at most five, must be regarded as the more suitable. If these factors, five and ten, will not answer, that is, if the brigades are too strong, then the corps d'armée must be introduced. But we must remember that by doing so, a new power is created which at once very much lowers all other factors. But now, what is too strong a brigade? The custom is to make them from 2,000 to 5,000 men strong. And there appear to be two reasons for making the latter number the limit. The first is that a brigade is supposed to be a subdivision which can be commanded by one man directly, that is, through the compass of his voice. The second is that any larger body of infantry should not be left without artillery, and through this first combination of arms, a special division itself is formed. We do not wish to involve ourselves in these tactical subtleties, neither shall we enter upon the disputed point where, and in what proportions, the combination of all three arms should take place, whether with divisions of 8,000 to 12,000 men, or with corps which are 20,000 to 30,000 men strong. The most decided opponent of these combinations will scarcely take exception at the mere assertion that nothing but this combination of the three arms can make a division independent, and that therefore, for such as are intended to be frequently detached separately, it is at very least desirable. An army of 200,000 men in ten divisions, the divisions composed of five brigades each, would give brigades of 4,000 strong. We see here no disproportion. Certainly this army might also be divided into five corps, the corps into four divisions, and the division into four brigades, which makes the brigade 2,500 men strong. But the first distribution looked at in the abstract appears to us preferable, for besides that in the other there is one more gradation of rank, five parts are too few to make an army manageable. Four divisions, in like manner, are too few for a corps, and 2,500 men is a weak brigade, of which in this manner there are 80, whereas the first formation has only 50 and is therefore simpler. All these advantages are given up merely for the sake of having only to send orders to half as many generals. Of course, the distribution into corps is still more unsuitable for smaller armies. This is the abstract view of the case. The particular case may present good reasons for deciding otherwise. Likewise, we must admit that although eight or ten divisions may be directed when united in a level country, in widely extended mountain positions, the thing might perhaps be impossible. A great river which divides an army into halves makes a commander of each half indispensable. In short, there are a hundred local and particular objects of the most decisive character before which any rules must give way. But still, experience teaches us that these abstract grounds come most frequently into use and are seldomer overruled by others than we should perhaps suppose. We wish further to explain clearly the scope of the foregoing considerations by a simple outline, for which purpose we now place the different points of most importance next to each other. As we mean by the term numbers, or parts of a whole, only those which are made by the primary, therefore the immediate division we say, one, if a whole has too few members, it is unwieldy. Two, if the parts of the whole body are too large, the power of the superior will is thereby weakened. Three, with every additional step through which an order has to pass, it is weakened in two ways. 
in one way by the loss of force which it suffers in its passage through an additional step in another way by the longer time in its transmission the tendency of all this is to show that the number of coordinate divisions should be as great and the gradational steps as few as possible and the only limitation to this conclusion is that in armies no more than from eight to ten and in subordinate corps no more than from four to at most six subdivisions can be conveniently directed two combination of arms for strategy the combination of the three arms in the order of battle is only important as regard to those parts of the army which according to the usual order of things are likely to be frequently employed in a detached position where they may be obliged to engage in an independent combat now it is in the nature of things that the members of the first class and for the most part only these are destined for detached positions because as we shall see elsewhere detached positions are most generally adopted upon the supposition and the necessity of a body independent in itself in a strict sense strategy would therefore only require a permanent combination of arms in an army corps or where these do not exist in divisions leaving it to circumstances to determine when a provisional combination of the three arms shall be made in subdivisions of an inferior order but it is easy to see that when corps are to be of considerable size such as thirty thousand or forty thousand men they can seldom find themselves in a situation to take up a completely connected position in mass with corps of such strength a combination of the arms in the divisions is therefore necessary no one who has any experience in war will treat lightly the delay which occurs when pressing messages have to be sent to some other perhaps distant point before cavalry can be brought to the support of the infantry to say nothing of the confusion which takes place the details of the combination of the three arms how far it should extend and how far down it should be carried what proportion should be observed the strength of the reserves of each to be set apart these are all purely tactical considerations three the disposition the determination as to the relations in space according to which the parts of an army amongst themselves are to be drawn up in order of battle is likewise completely a tactical subject referring solely to the battle no doubt there is also a strategic disposition of the parts but it depends almost entirely upon determinations and requirements of the moment and what there is in it of the rational does not come within the meaning of the term order of battle we shall therefore treat of it in the following chapter under the head of disposition of an army the order of battle of an army is therefore the organization and disposition of it in mass ready prepared for battle its parts are united in such a manner that both the tactical and strategical requirements of the moment can be easily satisfied by the employment of single parts drawn from the general mass when such momentary exigency has passed over these parts resume their original places and thus the order of battle becomes the first step to and principal foundation of that wholesome methodicism which like the beat of a pendulum regulates the work in war and of which we have already spoken in the fourth chapter of the second book chapter six general disposition of an army between the moment of the first assembling of military forces and that of the solution arrived at maturity when strategy has brought the army to the decisive point and each particular part has had its position and role pointed out by tactics there is in most cases a long interval it is the same between one decisive catastrophe and another formerly these intervals in a certain measure did not belong to war at all take for example the manner in which luxembourg encamped and marched we single out this general because he is celebrated for his camps and marches 
and therefore may be considered a representative general of his period, and from the history de la Flande Militaire, we know more about him than about other generals of the time. The camp was regularly pitched with its rear close to a river, or a morass, or a deep valley, which in the present day would be considered madness. The direction in which the enemy lay had so little to do with determining the front of the army, that cases are very common in which the rear was towards the enemy, and thus the front towards their own country. Now, this unheard-of mode of proceeding is perfectly unintelligible, unless we suppose that in the choice of camps the convenience of the troops was the chief, indeed almost the only consideration, and therefore look upon the state of being in camp as a state outside of the action of war, a kind of withdrawal behind the scenes, where one is quite at ease. The practice of always resting the rear upon some obstacle may be reckoned the only measure of security which was then taken. Of course, in the sense of the mode of conducting war in that day, for such a measure was quite inconsistent with the possibility of being compelled to fight in that position. But there was little reason for apprehension on that score, because the battle is generally depended on a kind of mutual understanding, like a duel, in which the parties repair to a convenient rendezvous, as armies, partly on account of their numerous cavalry, which in the decline of its splendour was still regarded particularly by the French as the principal arm, partly on account of the unwieldy organisation of their order of battle, could not fight, in every description of country. An army in a close, broken country was, as it were, under the protection of a neutral territory, and it could itself make but little use of broken ground. Therefore, it was deemed preferable to go to meet an enemy seeking battle. We know, indeed, that Luxembourg's battles at Fleurès, Steinkirk, and Neerwinden were conceived in a different spirit, but this spirit had only just then, under this great general, freed itself from the old method, and it had not yet reacted on the method of encampment. Alterations in the art of war originate always in matters of a decisive nature, and then lead, by degrees, to modifications in other things. The expression, il va à la guerre, used in reference to a partisan setting out to watch the enemy, shows how little the state of an army in camp was considered to be a state of real warfare. It was not much otherwise with the marches, for the artillery then separated itself completely from the rest of the army in order to take advantage of better and more secure roads, and the cavalry on the wings generally took the right alternately, that each might have, in turn, its share of the honour of marching on the right. At present, open bracket, that is, chiefly since the Silesian Wars, close bracket, the situation out of battle is so thoroughly influenced by its connection with battle that the two states are in intimate correlation, and the one can no longer be completely imagined without the other. Formerly in a campaign, the battle was the real weapon, the situation at other times only the handle, the former the steel blade, the other the wooden haft glued to it, the whole therefore composed of heterogeneous parts. Now the battle is the edge, the situation out of the battle, the back of the blade, the whole to be looked upon as metal completely welded together, in which it is impossible any longer to distinguish where the steel ends and the iron begins. The state in war outside of the battle is now partly regulated by the organisation and regulations with which the army comes prepared from a state of peace, partly by the tactical and strategic arrangements of the moment. The three situations in which an army may be placed are in quarters, on a march, or in camp. All three belong as much to tactics as to strategy, and these two branches bordering on each other here in many ways often seem to, or actually do, incorporate themselves with each other 
so that many dispositions may be looked upon at the same time as both tactical and strategic. We shall treat of these situations of an army outside of the combat in a general way, before any special objects come into connection with them, but we must first of all consider the general disposition of forces, because that is a superior and more comprehensive measure, determining as respects camps, cantonments and marches. If we look at the disposition of the forces in a general way, that is, leaving out of sight any special object, we can only imagine it as a unit, that is, as a whole, intended to fight all together, for any deviation from this simplest form would imply a special object. Thus arises, therefore, the conception of an army, let it be small or large. Further, when there is an absence of any special end, there only remains, as the sole object, the preservation of the army itself which, of course, includes its security. That the army shall be able to exist without inconvenience, and that it should be able to concentrate without difficulty for the purpose of fighting, are, therefore, the two requisite conditions. From these result as desirable the following points, more immediately applying to subjects concerning the existence and security of the army. 1. Facility of subsistence. 2. Facility of providing shelter for the troops. 3. Security of the rear. 4. An open country in front. 5. The position itself in broken country. 6. Strategic points d'appui. 7. A suitable distribution of the troops. The first two lead us to seek out cultivated districts and great towns and roads. They determine measures in general rather than in particular. In the chapter on lines of communication will be found what we mean by security of the rear. The first and most important point in this respect is that the centre of this position should be at a right angle with the principal line of retreat adjoining the position. Respecting the fourth point, an army certainly cannot look over an expanse of country in its front as it overlooks the space directly before it when in a tactical position for battle. But the strategic eyes are the advanced guard, scouts and patrols sent forward, spies, etc., etc., and the service will naturally be easier for these in an open than in an intersected country. The fifth point is merely the reverse of the fourth. Strategical points to appui differ from tactical in these two respects that the army need not be in immediate contact with them, and that, on the other hand, they must be of greater extent. The cause of this is that, according to the nature of the thing, the relations of time and space in which strategy moves are generally on a greater scale than those of tactics. If, therefore, an army posts itself at a distance of a mile from the sea coast or the banks of a great river, it leans strategically on these obstacles, for the enemy cannot make use of such space as this to effect a strategic turning movement. Within its narrow limits, he cannot adventure on marches miles in length, occupying days and weeks. On the other hand, in strategy, a lake of several miles in circumference is hardly to be looked upon as an obstacle. In its proceedings, a few miles to the right and left are not of much consequence. Fortresses will become strategic points to appui according as they are large and afford a wide sphere of action for offensive combinations. The disposition of the army in separate masses may be done with a view either to special objects and requirements, or those of a general nature. Here we can only speak of the latter. The first general necessity is to push forward the advanced guard and the other troops required to watch the enemy. The second is that, with very large armies, the reserves are usually placed several miles in the rear and consequently occupy a separate position. Lastly, the covering of both wings of an army usually requires a separate disposition of particular cause. By this covering, it is not at all meant that a portion of the army is to be detached to defend the space round its wings, in order to prevent an enemy from approaching these weak points, as they are called. 
who would then defend the wings of these flanking corps. This kind of idea, which is so common, is complete nonsense. The wings of an army are in themselves not weak points of an army for this reason, that the enemy also has wings and cannot menace ours without placing its own in jeopardy. It is only if circumstances are unequal, if the enemy's army is larger than ours, if his lines of communication are more secure, open bracket, see lines of communication, close bracket, it is only then that the wings become weak points. But of these special cases we are not now speaking, therefore neither of a case in which a flanking corps is appointed in connection with other combinations to defend effectually the space on our wings, for that no longer belongs to the category of general dispositions. But although the wings are not particularly weak parts, still they are particularly important, because here, on account of flanking movements, the defence is not so simple as in front. Measures are more complicated and require more time and preparation. For this reason, it is necessary in the majority of cases to protect the wings specially against unforeseen enterprises on the part of the enemy, and this is done by placing stronger masses on the wings than would be required for mere purposes of observation. To press heavily these masses, even if they oppose no very serious resistance, more time is required, and the stronger they are, the more the enemy must develop his forces and his intentions, and by that means the object of the measure is attained. What is to be done further depends on the particular plans of the moment. We may therefore regard corps placed on the wings as lateral advanced guards, intended to retard the advance of the enemy through the space beyond our wings, and give us time to make dispositions to counter his movement. If these corps are to fall back on the main body, and the latter is not to make a backward movement at the same time, then it follows of itself that they must not be in the same line with the front of the main body, but thrown out somewhat forwards, because when a retreat is to be made, even without being preceded by a serious engagement, they should not retreat directly on the side of the position. From these reasons of a subjective nature, as they relate to the inner organisation of the army, there arises a natural system of disposition composed of four or five parts, according as the reserve remains with the main body or not. As the subsistence and shelter of the troops partly decide the choice of a position in general, so also they contribute to its disposition in separate divisions. The attention which they demand comes into consideration along with other considerations mentioned above, and we seek to satisfy the one without prejudice to the other. In most cases, by the division of an army into five separate corps, the difficulties of subsistence and quartering will be overcome, and no great alteration will afterwards be required on their account. We have still to cast a glance at the distance at which these separated corps may be allowed to be placed, if we are to retain in view the advantage of mutual support, and therefore of concentrating for battle. On this subject we remind our readers of what is said in the chapters on the duration and decision of the combat, according to which no absolute distance, but only the most general, as it were, average rules can be given, because absolute and relative strength of arms and country have a great influence. The distance of the advanced guard is the easiest to fix, as in retreating it falls back on the main body of the army, and therefore may be, at all events, at a distance of a long day's march, without incurring the risk of being obliged to fight an independent battle. But it should not be sent further in advance than the security of the army requires, because the further it has to fall back, the more it suffers. Respecting corps on the flanks, as we have already said, the combat of an ordinary division of 8,000 to 10,000 men usually lasts for several hours, even for half a day, before it is decided. On that account, therefore, there need be no hesitation in placing such a division at a distance of some leagues, or one or two miles, 
and for the same reason corps of three or four divisions may be detached a day's march or a distance of three or four miles from this natural and general disposition of the main body in four or five divisions at particular distances a certain method has arisen of dividing an army in a mechanical manner wherever there are no strong special reasons against this ordinary method but although we assume that each of these distinct parts of an army shall be competent to undertake an independent combat and it may be obliged to engage in one it does not therefore by any means follow that the real object of fractioning an army is that the parts should fight separately the necessity for this distribution of the army is mostly only a condition of existence imposed by time if the enemy approaches our position to try the fate of a general action the strategic period is over everything concentrates itself into the one moment of the battle and therewith terminates and vanishes the object of the distribution of the army as soon as the battle commences considerations about quarters and subsistence are suspended the observation of the enemy before our front and on our flanks has fulfilled the purpose of checking his advance by a partial resistance and now all resolves itself into the one great unit the great battle the best criterion of skill in the disposition of an army lies in the proof that the distribution has been considered merely as a condition as a necessary evil but that the united action in battle has been considered the object of the disposition end of on war volumes two and three book five chapters five and six recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia